Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 19 of Yoga Land. I have such a treat for you today, everyone. Today, I talk to Coral Brown, who is a senior teacher in the Prana Vinyasa Flow tradition. She leads trainings and retreats and workshops worldwide. She's been on the cover of Yoga Journal and as a regular contributor for them. She's also featured in video classes on yogavibes and 108.com. But more than that, Coral is just a really fun, geeky, I hope you don't mind my saying that, Coral, geeky person to talk to. And uh, we talk today about the Hindu deities and how she incorporates them into her yoga classes and into her holistic therapy practice. She is a trained, licensed therapist in both Western and Eastern techniques And she has a really interesting way that she draws in mythology and story in helping people to rediscover their own story and write their own narrative. Lastly, Coral is from New England, and my family is originally from New England. So thus the wicked awesome reference at the end. Enjoy the podcast, everyone. I'd love to start with you and your story and to know what it is that you love about the deity stories and why they resonate with you? So I've always loved mythology and stories and philosophy. My undergraduate was philosophy and Eastern philosophy specifically, and I focused on Hinduism. I I just fell in love with it right away. But prior to that, I was pretty obsessed with Greek mythology. So I just have always kind of been interested in the power of story and myth and archetypes and how we identify with them even and before greek mythology it was star wars and of course it still is and always will be yes um, (laughs) that's great (laughs) you know so just uh, the the cross-cultural ways that they they knit together fascinate me and so it's kind of it's always it started when i was really little and i've just always been interested in it yeah so were you introduced to oh no you said you were your your specific focus in your undergraduate major was Hindu mythology. So you were introduced to them in college. Yeah, a little bit. I didn't pursue it. I was more just studying the whole canon of Hindu philosophy. And from there, the spirituality and and after that, the religion, not the yoga asana at all. Um, That came later when my mom insisted that I try it. And you know, I've said before, I've told the story, she told me I should do yoga since I loved all this stuff about it so much. And I said it was a fad. Madonna was doing it. This is in the nineties. And she said, it's a 5,000 year old fad. You should try it. And (laughs) I said, okay. So mom was right. But, um, it was actually, I remember I was in India and it was the first time I was there. And I mean, I remember stepping off the plane and there's these huge statues, deities everywhere. And I just felt so at home and blissed. I loved it. And I was down in Southern India with my teacher Shiva. And this is like 2005, I think. And people on the retreat that she was leading were talking about uh, the Ishtadevata. Who's your Ishtadevata, which is your your God or your incarnation, Mirti, deity that you feel affiliated with? And I was like, I don't know. There's so many. And, and I felt this pull toward the qualities that Shiva, not Shiva Ray, but Shiva, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, one of the Trimurti represents. Um, so it was, it was in those moments in Southern India that I started really feeling a direct pull to a specific 
the character quality incarnation. So which incarnation of Shiva, Coral? That is a very, <laughs> we need to distinguish. And you can tell people a little about the different incarnations better than I can. Exactly. Then it, it's, it's, it's just, it's so vast, right? It's, yeah. it's never ending. And, and that's why it's hard to study. You know, when people say, how can I learn about this? I'm like, oh my God, there's so, it can be so overwhelming, but it can also be so simple, you know? So when I feel an alliance or affiliation with the qualities of Shiva or an incarnation of it, it's, the transforming quality that pushes us through in our evolution and that is in in its essence sustainable. So we have to have that that change in movement and churning in order to keep cultivating who and what we are. And in on a worldly level, a soul level, all levels. So it's just it's doing the work, I think. Do you still feel that particular affiliation or does it transform over time like which story you're most aligned with at a certain time in your life? Like you're, you're pregnant right now. You're about to, you're about to have a baby. So you might. You're right. Yeah. In my hospital bag, I have a Ganesh just because why not? And a Dorga, which it, Dorga is representing the feminine quality. The same thing that I just described in Shiva, but the feminine quality. So kind of like when they, when you do the Myers-Briggs or some personality test and they, they say it doesn't really change over time. Your answers might change to more deeply reveal the, the truer answer, but that answer was there before. You just maybe couldn't see it sort of thing. So I think that my my root affiliation person, uh, whatever we want to call it, has not changed, but certainly at different times, like you alluded to with being pregnant, we call on different facets or different deities because that's what they represent are the different facets of the psyche and ourselves and our own story. So yeah. we kind of pull out these these particular deities when it's their turn to come on deck and be the, the superhero sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You told me the story the other day about how the deities are introduced in India. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, that when I was in India that first time, made so much sense because I go to so many bookstores because if, okay, if you ever go to India, bring an empty suitcase for books because it's for everybody. Yeah. There's so many books there and they're like 50 rupees. So it's amazing. You'll make up for it in your excess baggage fees, but it's worth it. That's true. <laughs> um, those are so heavy. So in the um, bookstores, I would see all these comic books and they were comic books, just like we have Superman, Batman, but they were telling the story of the Ramayana and, you know, all of these different Indian classics. And this is how they introduce the multifaceted and many kind of different versions of the stories to the, the kids. Right. Right. You know, be, so in this a, like very accessible way and in a really fun way and in a really heroic way, because kids... Like, they, yeah, the kids love hero stories. Like you said, Star Wars is really our, I mean, it's funny that you brought up Star Wars. I mean, that really is, at least for our generation, and I know that George Lucas has tried to make it for these current generations. I don't know if he su succeeded or not. But, I mean, that really is, like, the heroic mythology of our time for our culture. Absolutely. And it references biblical, Greek, Hindu. I mean, when we, when we trace back religion and cultures, the longest consistently civilized culture is India. Yeah. So when we think of how we've appropriated or acculturated, whatever you want to call it, how we've learned to be who we are, whether it's the, the number system, you know, it started in India. So mm -hmm. they, of course, we could trace everything back in, in one way or another to that culture. Hmm. I don't think partially. I that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. 
How were you introduced to the deity stories in respect to your asana practice? Was that through Shiva Ray? Yes, definitely. Shiva pulls in a lot of the different qualities of the goddess, specifically of Durga, of Saraswati, mm. of Lakshmi. Having studied with Shiva for so long has definitely always been part of our culture, the prana flow culture, mm-hmm. and part of the, the learning and teacher training. And, you know, it's it's not advanced teacher training, it's the fundamentals. And then just through kind of obsessively studying on my own mm-hmm. and, you know, reading Sally Kempton. And there's this one particular Hindu mythology book that I get in India that I love. And by the time we're finished, I'll find the book and give you the reference if you like. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that would be <laughs> great. It's very simple because there's so many books and they're so complex. And like I was going to say with the comic books, they give the opportunity to to play out more than one aspect or version of the story. Oh, yeah. Because as adults, we're like, no, this is how it happened. And we can start to argue, no, this is how Ganesh got his, you know, one tusk cut off. No, there's another, there's so many different versions. And the idea is the moral of the story is basically always the same. It's just told in different ways. Oral traditions, that's what happens. They get shifted, changed, and amalgamated. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but one of the reasons I started this, well, the thing that prompted me to start this podcast was an interview I did years ago at Yoga Journal with Gary Krafsow and Vasant Laud and Stephanie Simon and one other um, yoga teacher. And the topic was, is yoga a religion? And Mm -hmm. it was such a great conversation because Gary and Vasant really differed in their opinions. And, you know, Gary felt like, it's very separate from religion and, and Basant felt like it's just intertwined. It's just there. And they were really respectful in the way that they, they disagreed with each other. It was a great conversation. And then it got boiled down to a magazine story that was like, you know, 200 words. And I thought, I oh know. man, I want to capture these conversations. So it's just interesting that I'm kind of coming back to this question with you, which is like, what would you say to people who are fearful that introducing the deity stories is is akin to making sure, yeah, yoga, absolutely. you know, based on religion. No, I, I love that question. Um, and I love the example you gave in looking at Gary and Dr. Laud, Dr. Laud's Indian. <laughs> and of course, that's his answer because it is intertwined in his culture. There's no separating that braid. You know, those strands are so woven tightly together. And, and that's truly the, the culture of yoga at its essence. The culture of yoga in the West We've just like we've shifted the warrior one foot pattern for our Western bodies. We've, you know, shifted, we've kind of taken what's safe, I think, so that we can introduce it and so that it can, or what's, what the safer parts have thrived, meaning the the copacetic parts. Sure. But to answer the question, I think that religion, there's a spectrum. Yoga or Hinduism at itself is a philosophy. It's not a religion. At its root, it's a philosophy. It can be, by choice, a spirituality, and it can be organized, codified like any other religion, into a religion. So the way that we choose to adopt the practice, you know, is up to us. But the deities, yes, you can absolutely make it very religious based. You can make it spiritually based, and you can make it philosophically based. So in teaching asana, I think that it is pretty safe to refer to these aspects of the deities as simply being reflections or aspects of who we are. And 
you don't have to layer in any religious affiliations. And sometimes like, and I do this in my, my therapy practice when I work with my patients and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about Ganesh and his qualities, but I don't necessarily say it's Ganesh. I just give that the archetype and those qualities. And then if it's someone that's yoga interested or a yogi themselves, then I'll go further and deeper into the explanation. And it, it's like caricatures. The, the deities are caricatures of the human persona. Right, right. If you're believing more from a religious perspective and a fundamentalist religious perspective, then yes, Shiva lives in the Himavan, which is the heaven. It also means the Himalayas. And, you know, like then you believe more of that version of the story. That's not necessarily what I'm teaching within asana class. Hmm. I'm I'm pulling out the component that is appropriate for our culture that will be able to be absorbed. you have talked a lot about how Hindu mythology is really relevant for modern yoga practice, which I'm excited about because I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but the stories have always been really interesting to me. One of my first classes that I took in college was, I was almost a religion major. And it's because one of the first classes that I took was religion as a human experience. Mm-hmm. And I was never religious. I kind of was always envious of people who felt like really deep religious connections because I think it's very grounding. But I related very much to this idea that, you know, we're all here having this really mystical experience. (laughs) And looking at these stories can be just fascinating and helpful. And we can relate to them over, you know, all of these years later, we can still relate to these stories, which is, is just amazing to me. So, okay. You talked about your therapy practice. I want to stick with yoga for a little bit for yes, a definitely. little bit longer. Um, but even even what you just said, Andrea, I get excited, so I have to say something. Sorry to interrupt you, but well, you know what you just said about the I don't know. I, like I think of Jesus. Whether you believe Jesus, an atheist could say, okay, yes, Jesus existed as a human being. It, we're not necessarily debating the existence of these characters or these deities, but it's what they represent, what Jesus represented altruism or, you know, what Ganesh. So it's, it's more, it's being able to get past the obstacle that happens to be the religious trigger word, like saying the word God, like what I love when Sean Korn says, God, the God of your understanding. So it's really important as teachers and, and as practitioners that we can translate as, as a student, that you can translate whatever the teacher's saying into a safe explanation for yourself and not get triggered by just a word. Um, have more power over your thought management mm. than, you know, getting, letting that trigger you and take away your practice. That becomes the practice. And then as teachers to be able to, like every time I talk about the deities in class, I follow it by like this little caveat or disclosure by saying, we're not chanting, we're not expecting Ganesh when we chant Om Gam Ganapate Namaha, some elephant-headed, big-bellied guy to come in and solve our problems. You know, we're, we're invoking this power within ourselves. But, you know, that's what this mantra is doing is it's 
we're, we're invoking ourselves rather than something else. It's just, there's different stages to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that even like chanting the sound of Aum, that can feel religious for people. If you break it down into A-U-M, the beginning, the middle, the end, or just vibration, unpacking it so that people really educating so that people can understand it and then participate without fear. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody believes or thinks or knows the same things, you know? Okay. So no, that's great. And I mean, I think you're bringing up a really important point, which is that it's something that you're so passionate about and you're so interested in that you've thought about it from different angles. You've thought about it from the origins and then you've thought about it in terms of presenting it in a way that makes sense within our culture and that's mm-hmm. really complicated. That's 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 high level thought, and I think it takes a certain amount of skill, and it's and it's hard to do. How do you, you know, weave the stories into your classes? Like, do you save it for workshops? Do you kind of do you are, are you do you consciously bring it in consistently? How do you do that? Yes, to all of that. Um, <laughs> I do. So I do a Hindu mythology workshop and I have this PowerPoint presentation with these beautiful images and a, uh, one of those little laser pointers. And I point out why they have all the different arms and what the tools that they carry represent and how you can identify them in their their specific story. So that's that's one part. And then within my teacher training, I teach it consistently as well. But in my regular public weekly classes, sometimes I'll pick a specific theme. And some deities are easier to teach about because they have a pose assigned to them, like Hanuman, Uh Vishwamitrasana, you know, Vashistasana. So you can use that pose. And what I will do when I teach my students in training how to do this is I'll tell the stories of Hanuman throughout the class as I'm laying down all the different components that will lead them to be able to safely and deeply embody the pose itself, Hanumanasana, split, full, full split pose. Right. And so I'll layer in, you know, there's a multitasking going on in, when you're teaching. Yeah. So I'll layer in the alignment principles and, you know, the asana and all the breath cues and pranayama and, and stuff like that. And then typically when they are in a very safe and non-complex pose, meaning not warrior three, something where that, you know, all their focus and attention is, is going into just embodying what they're doing. Say they're either in down dog or in warrior two. And instead of holding the pose for five breaths and just pointing out all the alignment cues, which maybe I'll do on the right side. And then on the left side, I'll unpack the story a little bit farther and then bring them back through, you know, different movements and then return to it again. So it's just kind of sewn throughout the practice. So cool dude yeah it's fun seriously (laughs) I mean also just with the perspective of I mean just hearing what it's like to teach a yoga class and to layer these things in it's um it's very cool so okay I don't know the Visvamitrasana story would you mind talking through the Vis a little bit like I don't know how easy or difficult that is in this context. It's it's not. I mean, Vishvamitra is a good. So there's Vashista and Vishvamitra. And I honestly, I get them confused, even the poses and the stories too. But and then Ashtavakrasana comes in and that's right. kind of along. The, so these are sages and all three of those poses for each of the sages. There's really it's based on a dispute and a resolution, mm. whether it's about the golden cow of plenty, which I love. Hearing, I just think that's hilarious, yeah. but there's this cow of plenty that everyone's <laughs> arguing over. And, you know, ultimately one of these characters goes to the main God and does all this, this prayer and prostration 
and asks for these boons or gifts so that he can get his way. And it ends up in one way or another that, yes, this this is granted. And of course, the wish is granted, but then it has fallout or side effects and, you know, they get greedy and then the system gets righted. So it, it's kind of like there's all these different stories, morality based stories woven into and a lot of them are very similar in those three in particular. Bashista is or no, I'm thinking Vyas. Yeah, that's the same thing. So Mahabharata and Ganesh have a, a link together. The Mahabharata, the this big epic story yes. that the Bhagavad Gita is within, was penned by Ganesha. That's one of the ways that we think he lost one of his tusks. If mm. you look at a depiction, he has one tusk and then a half tusk. That he and uh, Vyas were in caves down the row from each other. and he was asked to write out the Mahabharata, but he had to, there was two conditions. It had to be telepathically communicated to him by way of just like down, like they were each in their respective caves. And then he also had to do it all at once. So he was going, Vashista or Vyas was going to say it once and once only and telepathically and Ganesh had to get it all down. Whoa. You know what this makes me think of? Do you think about how you're going to share the stories with your child? Because I think all the time, like I've been exposed to the stories and I know some of them, um, but I don't mm. like, I don't know them intimately or well enough to, to teach them to Sophia, but I think they're so interesting. And I think for kids, because some of them are, you know, half animal and mm-hmm. they could be so great for kids to hook into. Do you ever, do you, have you thought about that yet? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I have, um, in the baby's room, I don't have that much stuff done. We don't know what we're having. So you know, we didn't go over overkill decorating, but I have this army of deities you do. <laughs> that are ready. Yeah. And they're the really colorful, plasticky ones, kitschy stuff that you get in India. And they're just small, like three, three inches each, but it's like the whole army is set up there. There's one of everybody. So watching over, oh, you know, wow. I can feel superstitious at times, you know, and yeah. it's fun, but also being able to look up and point and explain and tell stories for sure. Oh my gosh. I, this is such a non sequitur, but I have this little Siddhartha in Sophia's room and Mm -hmm. um, that's the only thing I have. And actually I've seen the little plastic deities in San Francisco in shop windows and been like, oh, I should get her a pink Ganesh. Maybe I will after this conversation. Yeah. (laughs) But um, anyway, I have this Siddhartha and when she was really little, one time was right next to her rocking chair where I would nurse her and she nursed for a really long time. So she was talking (laughs) while she was nursing and she actually looked at the Siddhartha one time and called it Elmo. (laughs) Uh, but so that's perfect. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause she was obsessed with Elmo at that time and she just like really related to it somehow on this very mystical level. Also, when we were in Hawaii once, there were these statues of Kuan Yin. Um, there was one at the base of the retreat center where we were staying. And then there was one a week later at the hotel that we were staying at and she was signing at that time. I taught her like baby sign so she could express herself. And every time we walked past the Kuan Yin, she would sign grandma. Oh, I know. it was amazing. But that's the archetype. Like it represents the wisdom and the mother. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. And she's like, from a very young age has been obsessed with her grandmas. Um, you'll find that with your child. It's like the sweetest thing. They love their grandparents so much. So it was, it was a sweet thing that she would see her grandma in these Wow. Anyway, anyway. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your therapy practice because I think this is really fascinating. You are a licensed therapist. 
you have a holistic therapy practice where you see yes. patients one-on-one. And we've talked about how sometimes you incorporate mythology in these particular stories into helping people kind of rewrite their own personal story. So can you offer an example of, of what this looks like? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give a little background. So narrative therapy is an approach that Western psychology uses. And um, so I'm holistically trained, meaning I'm uh, trained in Western traditional modalities and then alternative, which I'm doing air quotes around, which encompasses chakras and yoga and, you know, Feldenkrais methods, somatic methods, all kinds of stuff. But narrative therapy, I love because it, it makes me remember young, my youngian um, adoration for, for that style of that approach. So basically the story we tell is the story we believe. Also the story we believe is the story we tell. So it, we get stuck in this loop and mm. to interrupt that loop and ask the question, is it true? Is the story the way I'm telling it right now actually what happened? Because typically the event that has created the story usually is a, tra- a trauma of some sort happens at a younger age. And as we grow up, we have a different perspective of, of what that story is or was. Um, we're telling it, say it happened when we were seven years old. Now I'm 43 or 47 or 50, whatever. And I'm telling the story that the seven-year-old or the five-year-old remembers. Mm. So to stop and say, wait a second, what really happened there? Is the story I've been telling all this time even true anymore? And mo- sometimes that just you know, changes things. But it's the power of story and myth that is underlying. So even as adults, something happens. I broke my foot a few years ago. And it just, I, I talked about it so much. It was such a big topic of, you know, conversation topic that I was finally like, I'm so sick of telling this story. I don't want to give it any more power and attention and space to occupy in my body, my mind, my psyche, anything. So, you know, I started, I reframed the story. Um like you could say, oh, my hurt foot or my healing foot. Each of them have kind of different qualities, you know? So with, with that as an underlying, we then have these cultural stories that we identify with or myths. Um, and that's where entertainment comes in and capitalizes on them. And, and the romanticism behind whether it's the Cinderella story or the depth uh, on complexity and really spirituality of Star Wars and the Force. When they describe the Force, they're describing what in yoga we'd call prana. When we we are drawn to these stories or mythologies, it's because we have either something invested in it or we're, we had an original investment that we've lost and we want to reclaim. Mm. So there's something attractive about that story that makes us feel whole or comfortable or safe or gives us hope. Using the Hindu pantheon and pantheon, you know the the many gods, but really when it it's a non polytheistic philosophy slash religion slash spirituality, it's one. But there's the one is diverse. There's diversity within that individual consciousness, and we are that diversity. So we play all these different roles. Um, we wear all these different hats. We get stuck with one, and we forget about the other ones. That so bringing, so true. yeah, yeah. So yeah. bringing back to, to balance by remembering all these other facets and components and characteristics of ourselves. So it might take you know a session or so, or sometimes it's right away in the therapy room, where, and it may be, you know, since I'm more well versed in Hindu mythology at this point than I used to be in Greek mythology, that's what I would refer to, and again share to the degree that the client understands 
yoga and philosophy. And if they're there to kind of learn about that, I'll educate them. Um, but if, if they are just completely after Western style treatment, this still works. I just don't have to go into, Oh, there's this Ganesh or this Shiva, you know, but I can still explain the qualities and the attributes and identify just like Jung would say, there's all these different archetypes, the hero, the, the victim, the mother, the grandmother, you know, the wise woman. That's why we love these things like, you know, the daily angel cards or the, the roomy cards or the pictured kind of tarot deck that has all these different, you know, we're looking for guidance. Yeah. We're looking for the memory of our story and, and proof of that. And we're also looking, I mean, it's interesting that you, you laid it out so well. We're also looking for options. You know, mm. I mean, I think, you know, when you're, we grow, I see with my daughter how tribal we are. And I mean that in a great way yeah. like that they identify their, their tribes so quickly. You know, she could meet a dear, you know, friend of mine in her sixties and she'll behave one way. And then the second she sees my mother or my mother-in-law, she knows like that is her grandmother. She knows that is her tribe. And so there's this wonderful thing and this comfort in that. But I think, you know, family stories become really ingrained and, you know, you become labeled in your family. And, you know, I was always like the funny one. So it's not necessarily a bad label. It was great being the funny one in my family. But you do at a certain point, like in your adulthood, and maybe you can speak to kind of this. Sure. um, you, You want to have more options and, and sometimes mm-hmm. you don't even know that they're there. Right. So what you describe is, is beautiful because, and you've said it a couple of different ways about just youth and their kind of untapped un you know, there's no, been no trespassing yet on their consciousness really. So they have with such clarity, they can identify, you know, it doesn't matter what color or what figure, or what shape, they just see the essence of something Yeah, and they can identify it. And then Basically, in my belief, we're all we all come with that ability. And in order to function in this culture, this world realm, it takes some forgetting. So we forget a lot of that stuff as we learn other things like counting and ABCs, you know, the intuitive part gets kind of stuffed down because of the cerebral and the logical development. Years later, we meet yoga, a therapist, a partner, some experience that helps jog our memory and we start unpacking and reorganizing. And it's around that time, and it can be in your 20s or your 50s, it's really third chakra development um, psychologically, where we start to say, all right, who am I? Despite who they've told me I am, they meaning my family, my culture, my ancestors, you're Irish, you do this, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and part of it ends up being true, because we've made it true. Um, it, in some of its, you know, we call it nature or nurture or nature or environmental um, effects. So as we start to, you know, almost sort our laundry, uh, our characteristics of ourselves, who are we? Yes, I'm funny, but that's not my only identity. What are my other skills and are they mine or are they my family's? Is it time to let go of some of these things? And whether you want to call it, you know, shadow or projection, and, and typically we end up, our psyche ends up drawing in other personalities or people or partners that will either help us continue identifying as, as that role, whatever it might be, the, the victim, the hero, the funny person, or you call, we end up calling in people that will 
challenge us to to grow and that might look like a divorce it might look like a, a more of a negative and you know we could call it a, a, a an opportunity growth a growth opportunity or we could call it a devastating breakup our perspective manifests the reality is what it comes down to but ultimately that forces that's again that shiva quality transformative push that makes us evolve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes, and we resist and to the degree of our resistance is, is equal the degree of our development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whether this happens at 20 or 50 is kind of directly related to how we live in the world and how we process and receive and grow and, and sh- let our perspective shift. I mean, the other nice thing about it is, you know, we were talking about this earlier when you said you packed your bag and you have Dorga in there. It's like they, they each represents such different energies. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. Dorga isn't just Dorga, you know, she has, she even has different energies within her energy, but like, depending on what you're going through, if you start to become aware of these stories, you can kind of call upon what you need in Definitely. That, for that particular situation. Yeah. And it's, it can get really fun. It can also be very overwhelming, but it's really fun in that there's a chant that goes along with each one or a mantra, I mean, which is a chant or a, a visualization or, you know, or a specific geometric shape, which is a yantra that, and, and all of the, or, you know, even a stone or all of these different meditations and stories are just tools to help us be able to kind of find, refine and align our consciousness with where, where it is that we're going or being led. Yeah. Okay. Two things. First, I would just love it if you would figure out some way to make this into an online course. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good idea. something that you could have used, right. When you were starting yeah. to get interested in this, that's still not that accessible. Like you said, it's actually hard to find this information in an accessible way. You're right. And even just the other day, a friend texted me, we actually did our original teacher training together like 17 years ago. And she was like, where can I learn about the Hindu deities? And I'm like, oh, I can send you my PowerPoint. But, you know, there's not really like this book that I'll reference is very small and it's direct and simple and it's a great starting point for people, I think, to dive in. It's called Hinduism, an introduction. Okay. And it's by Dharam Veer Singh. The last name is V-I-R-S-I-N-G-H. And it's out of print, but Amazon has like used copies that you can get. Yeah. That was my second question was, you know, just resources that you that you like. Yeah, I like that one. I love listening or reading anything Sally Kempton puts out. She does a lot of goddess-oriented work and within the work the meditations, she will give the story. So there's a lot of different creation stories that are based through the paternal kind of perspective and Sally will give the the maternal based version mm-hmm. of the story. And it's just wonderful to hear how they, they shift even just ever so slightly. Yeah. She is super knowledgeable of all of this. Yeah. I, I love the, one of the creation story or not, of Shiva and Shakti or Shiva and poverty where Sally tells it in one way and the, the Shiva text would tell it in another way. So it's really, it's really cool. Oh, that is cool. And she has her book Awaken Shakti too, which yes. is a great goddess goddess book. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to ask is kind of, you know, do you fear that some of this is getting lost? You know, do you? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Although I I feel like it's, there's a tipping point that we're approaching in the yoga culture, the Western yoga culture. 
you know, certainly if you look at the historical trajectory of how yoga came to the West and, and, you know, we're losing these greats like Dasika Char just passed and Iyengar, like, you know, we're just losing these original generation teachers um, that Krishnamacharya taught and gave us. So, you know, we have to carry the torch. We have to keep this up and not dilute it. And I think there's been this movement in order to make it for the people, for everybody, we've opened it up and taken off a lot of the structure around it that would maybe limit the practice to certain people or, you know, not to other people. So we've made it just as accessible as possible. And in doing that named, you know, 7,000 different styles of yoga, you know, so there's something truly for everybody, which is fantastic. But the underlying essence, it loot, you know, all these other practices, kind of like aerobics lost its, its momentum because it didn't have the underlying depth. Yeah. What's kept yoga around for 5,000 years is it has that underlying depth. The fad parts, like I said to my mom, you know, like 20 years ago, those will fall by the wayside, but the, that underlying essence of yoga, it can't be removed. I worry that as a culture, we're forgetting it, but I do believe that it'll come back around. And, and, and it, and it is, I, I do believe that it is, there's a resurgence now and social media is such a powerful tool and people are just so thirsty for understanding and knowing themselves in yoga. We call it Svadhyaya, right? So whether you know that that term even exists as a yogic word, it's something we're all doing. Yes. And in this this Hindu mythology vein, there's a lot of answers for some people. You know, it's like when people go to a psychic or they go to the books or they go to the ashram or they go to the temple that, you know, we're all looking in our own way to nature, to the mountains to find something. And there's a lot of treasures here that I think I think we'll catch on. And, you know, it's when you walk into a studio, there's different styles where they're more sterile based, sterilized uh, as far as the decor. And it doesn't look like yoga. It it looks like just a place Mm -hmm. and you can, you can assign, we could assign, Oh, that's not yoga. Or, or we could say, no, it gives you the opportunity to project your own images onto these bare walls. Right. But it is up to us as the teachers to educate people. And to educate ourselves first, and then to mindfully, purposefully bring in these deeper components of yoga, whether it's Hindu mythology aspects or whether it's the yamas and the niyamas, you know, but just that there's more than the one limb of asana. Absolutely. Or whether it's like using all of the asana and technique to the end of, with the end goal of of the process of self-discovery. Yeah. I mean, I think you say, say it really beautifully. It's like, whether we know it or not, that process of self-discovery is kind of what we're all after. It is. And it's, it's what yoga, it's like this sneaky sort of a Trojan horse yoga. You know, whether you start out in a whatever kind of studio that doesn't call it by Sanskrit names, doesn't honor any of the history and lineages of, of the culture of yoga, just does the yoga poses the the mindfulness of the connection between the body, the breath, proprioceptor systems and your muscles, everything starts awakening and it can't necessarily be stopped unless yeah. you you force it. So, you know, those styles of practice that I just referred to, maybe that's just kind of like a gateway drug for people. And they eventually feel like they need more or they eventually start to put a finger on it and say, when I leave there, I feel good or I feel different or I feel whole. And then the inquiry starts. 
why? Mm-hmm. What is it about that stuff? Or they, they want to try a different kind or they stumble into it, whether they're stumbled, pushed, or pulled. Yeah. <laughs> you know, once you unroll a mat and you start the practice, it has its own force that carries us deeper towards center of ourselves because that's what's the essence of yoga is. Yeah. And I think what's great about this conversation, I'm so happy that I talked to you, is that, you know, these stories are another way to do that self-inquiry process. They're another inroad to Mm -hmm. really, like you said, discovering these, all these archetypes within yourself, which is fun and empowering. Mm -hmm. Both. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Coral. This was awesome. Wicked awesome. Wait, there you go. <laughs> you, you know my people are originally from Massachusetts. so That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you too. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 19. And I will put links on that page to the books that Coral and I talked about in the episode. Enjoy your practice, everyone, and uh, go watch Star Wars. Go uh, figure out who your Star Wars Ishta Devata is. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.